morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL, bringing you what we call the American view. That's the view of the founders of our constitutional republic. It's very simply stated in the Declaration of Independence. There is a creator God, and that's the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the sole purpose, you can underline that word soul, the sole purpose of human civil government is to protect and secure those God-given rights. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And this fine Friday morning with me is a scholar and gentleman, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And we're engaged in a series looking at the history of government across the ages from the earliest times that... Uh, we go back to the biblical record and then on through the ancient civilizations up until uh, uh, Rome when the, from and transition from before Christ BC to AD in the year of our Lord and, and on uh, as we're moving forward into what is called the medieval period and uh, looking at what we can learn about the structures of civil government, what good things, what bad things, what mistakes were made. And this lesson is important because this is exactly what the founders of our constitutional republic did. They studied history. They were well aware of how governments worked and, well, didn't work so well in the history of the world. And so as they were crafting a brand new republic, a constitutional republic, they were clear that they wanted a system of government that avoided the great many of pitfalls and mistakes that uh, they could see throughout the history of the world. And to be precise, where each state in our union is itself a constitutional republic, and therefore our constitution is a uh, uh, you know a, a confederation, if you would, of sovereign independent states who've come together for certain very limited purposes. Those purposes are spelled out in the Constitution of the United States, and the only powers that we the people have given to that federal government is the specific powers specified in uh, that Constitution. So if it's not mentioned in the Constitution, the federal government has no authority to do anything in that subject matter, which is why things like redefining marriage are so insane, because marriage is never mentioned as a area of life that we the people have given over to the federal government. Now, marriage can be an area where the state governments uh, in their constitutions say that they have some jurisdiction. I believe really it's not the business of the state, but that's, a, that's another matter, just that as an example. But another example would come to mind, that of education. There is no mention of education at all whatsoever in our constitution. Therefore, we the people of the sovereign states have not granted to the federal government any authority to do anything about the subject matter of education. They, they cannot spend one penny on that subject matter. They cannot make one determination about that area of life. It's out of their boundaries. And yet we have a Department of Education spending billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, because our form of government has been corrupted by those in power who believe basically they can do whatever they please. And that's a very dangerous thing because our founders looked at that, that example of history and they saw plenty of governments where people did whatever they pleased because they had power and they had a theory of government that might makes right. And the result of that was tyranny. No liberty, no freedom whatsoever for the people, only uh, uh, liberty, you might say, for those in power, those who had the wealth and power, grew in wealth and power as they 
uh, oppressed the people, as they stole from the people, and so on. So our founders were very clear they did not want that. But they came to that conclusion through a study that we're seeking to replicate as we look at the history of civil government throughout the world. Phil is taking us through, at this point, uh, what would be called the medieval period, and is going to look at uh, uh, the, the city-states of uh, Florence, Milan, and, and Venice today. But I'm still working through the biblical history, so I'm a several, uh, several thousand years earlier, uh, because I want to talk today about what took place at Mount Sinai. You remember the children of Israel uh, had left Egypt. They had been liberated from Egypt. In fact, the Ten Commandments begins with God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And here's the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me. So we need to understand that the children of Israel were experiencing at Sinai the introduction to a brand new form of government, I believe, brand new in the history of the human race. Before this, governments were might makes right kind of government, like that of Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh grew to great wealth and power uh, under, well, the, the benefit that Joseph brought to him during the uh, 14 years, seven years of, of uh, plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And during those seven years of plenty, Joseph gathered 20% of the harvest together, a taxation on all the people of Egypt, gathered all those grain together. And then in the uh, seven years of famine, he sold back to the people uh, the grain that he had gathered from them in the previous seven years. So the result was the people sold ultimately all their uh, wealth. They took all their savings and they spent that to buy food. And, and when they were done with that, they, they bought, they sold their stock, their animals, and their livestock were sold, and then not having anything left, then they sold their property. And when they had sold their property, there was nothing left except to sell their bodies, which they did. They sold themselves into slavery. So the entire population, other than Israel, were slaves of the Pharaoh. And so the after Joseph died and a new Pharaoh came to power, he looked around his kingdom and said, how can I increase my revenue? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's those people over there, Israelites. They're not my slaves. Everybody else is my slaves. And so he enslaved the children of Israel to join the rest of the slaves in uh, his empire. But God was displeased with that. And his people cried out to him for liberty from that bondage of slavery. And God came through Moses and set them free in the Exodus. So we need to understand that the Exodus is really a political as well as a religious transformation. The political transformation was they went from being slaves in the land of Egypt, as as were all the other Egyptians, slaves of a man who, uh, you know, deluded enough to believe he was God. That's what Pharaoh believed he was God. And they were being liberated from that slavery to a whole new system of government. In this new system of government, God was bringing them at Mount Sinai. He said, the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me. You know, back in Egypt, Pharaoh had claimed to be a god. And uh, if you believe Pharaoh was a god, then, well, you would worship Pharaoh as god. And the Lord God is saying, no, no. In this new system, yes, it's a, it's a religious system, but it's also a political system, and that you are not to have any human being that is treated above other human beings as if that human were god. 
all human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, all human beings are equal. And the Lord was saying to the children of Israel, as he spells out in the rest of the details that we're going to look at uh, in, in this Hebrew Republic that God was creating at Mount Sinai, he's spelling out to them that you are to not have a king in this new political system. I, the Lord God, am your king. You are to have no human king, no human being exalted above other human beings with special privileges, special rights that other human beings don't have. All human beings are created in the image of God. All human beings are equal. And this Hebrew Republic emphasized that equality by saying there is no human being elevated to the position of king let alone the position of a wicked Pharaoh who claimed to be God. So the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, is not just a religious statement. It is also a political statement establishing a system of governance where God is the king. And this is important because we need to remember that in many, many, uh, as Phil has shown us already, in many uh, histories of various kingdoms around the world, the king views himself as a deity, like Pharaoh, or if not to that extent, at least the highest and most exalted human being. And as that highest and most exalted human being, he gets to make the law. He gets to determine what is right and what is wrong, what you must do and, and how much money you must pay to him of the sweat of your brow and how much of the fruit of your labor you get to keep and so on and so forth. So if someone is exalted above other human beings, we have an enormous impact in that those other human beings then are going to be abused. They're going to be treated, maybe not exactly as slaves as the, as the Hebrews were in, in Egypt, but often they'll be treated as serfs, as certainly we see that example in, uh, as Phil brought us, the history of, uh, of the Greek supposed republic. Really, yeah, republic's the wrong title to give to it because most of the population in Greece were slaves. And then in addition to the slaves, there were some free men who didn't actually hold citizenship rights. So there was an elite class, an oligarchy. Yeah, they were the rulers. Oh, yeah, they had all the freedom. So instead of having one uh, king over them, a monarchy, uh, a la the pharaoh kind of uh, idea of government, you know, many of those were just simple oligarchies. There's a ruling elite they have extra powers. They have all the, the, the wealth in their hands. And the rest of the people have to, uh, you know, slum it and uh, survive on, on what is left. But God said that was not to be the case in the Hebrew Republic. In this Hebrew Republic, there were to be no one human being that was other over another human being. All were to be equal under God, under his law as creatures made in his image. And this is, again, very important to understand because it's this concept of government that was our founder's idea in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created. Notice they did not say evolve because evolution doesn't comport at all with the constitutional republic that our founders were establishing, that all men are created equal. No one is above anyone else. If somebody gets to be the president, doesn't mean somehow they should have special privileges that other people do not have, special powers that other people uh, do not have. No, they're simply another human being that is supposed to be the servant of the rest of those in our, our constitutional republic. Uh, that's the whole idea of the phrase civil servant. And all those in government are supposed to be civil servants. Well, I don't know if you've ever interacted with many of the bureaucracies of civil government, 
eh, they're not often very civil. <laughs> and, and I've noted they also do not view themselves at all as servants. Usually they view you, the taxpayer, as their servant. And in God's economy and, and the structure that he was creating in the Constitutional Republic, not the Constitutional Republic, the Hebrew Republic, excuse me, and as he was creating the Hebrew Republic there at Mount Sinai, was a system by which every human being is equal. There would be people, and we'll talk about this a bit later, there will be people who were in positions of leadership serving the rest of the populace, but they were not greater than, better than, or ex more exalted than the people they were serving. There was to be no king in Israel by God's design. Now, we know later, because the people of Israel rejected God's design and they rejected uh, God himself as king, that they did have a monarchy, but that was not God's plan for them. That was not God's design for them. He had a republic in mind where all human beings were equal, and the, to maintain that view required obedience to this first commandment. And you might think that's kind of strange. The Ten Commandments have something to do with government. Oh, yes, they certainly do. They are the foundation of our constitutional republic, but our founders called the laws of nature and nature's God refer to the Bible and certainly referred to the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, is why the Ten Commandments were held or, or hung in most classrooms in our country or, uh, you know, all kinds of public spaces. The Ten Commandments were put up. This was because our, our, our the people of our, our nation recognized the foundation stone, the rock upon which this republic is built, as uh, President Andrew Jackson said, the rock upon which this republic is built is the Bible. And the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment is important. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is critical because if you're going to adopt another religious system, then the republic that God was designing at Mount Sinai would not work. It would only work if the worship of the one true God were upheld and maintained by the people. And, and God is making the point here at Exodus 20 that you could just compare your experience, Israel, what you had for 400 years under a very different religious system, a Pharaoh who believed he was God, a Pharaoh who believed that he owned you, that you were his property. And that's why when Moses came to him repeatedly commanding, let my people go, the Lord God says, let my people go. Pharaoh who am I to listen to your God? I'm not, I'm better than your, I'm bigger than your God. I'm stronger than your God. And that was really the point of the 10 plagues that came upon Egypt, proving that every God that the Egyptians worshiped was a false idol, was not, had, had no power that the true God, the God of Israel had power to destroy every one of their gods. And you look at the 10, uh, the 10 plagues, each one of those plagues, plagues actually relates to God making that point about one of the idols of Egypt. So, for example, just one example is that the Egyptians worshipped frogs. That's right. <laughs> they worshipped frogs. You might think that's kind of a strange thing. Why would a human being bow down and worship a frog? Well, that's the kind of demented thing that happens when you turn to idolatry. But God said, okay, you like frogs? I'm going to give you plenty of frogs. Frogs in your in your cleaning basin, frogs in your every part of your house, frogs in your bed. You're going to have frogs everywhere. And they did, the, the plague of frogs. And then the frogs all died and they stunk to high heaven. What a disaster. But the point God was making through each one of those plagues is, you guys are worshiping foolish idols. These are not real. They're inventions of men. And he's telling his people, you should have learned from your experience in Egypt not to worship idols. 
because idols are powerless to do you anything but harm. And if you worship and maintain the one true God, no other gods, no idolatry in your land, you will experience the maximum of liberty. In fact, if you follow my commands that God has given us here, the Ten Commandments, if you follow these Ten Commandments, you will have a blessing beyond compare compared to any, any other nation on earth. Because consider the basic problem of human civil government. It is this, that human beings disobey God's law. Human beings violate God's law that says thou shalt not murder. And murder is a huge problem, especially in America today. We see you know murder rates skyrocketing. And thou shalt not steal. Property rights are sacred. And thou shalt not commit adultery. Marriage is sacred. It's to be protected. And thou shalt not bear false witness, perjuring yourself and lying about your neighbor, especially in court and so on. And thou shalt not covet. So when we look at these commands of God and we say, if everybody in a society were to obey those commands, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. If those things were obeyed, that would be a very peaceful and safe society. Your property rights would be respected by your neighbor. You might not have to lock your front door because you could trust that your neighbor wasn't going to come in and steal from you while you are away from uh, your home. And, uh, you know, you can trust that you're not being lied to and, and you're not being attacked in court with lies that someone is telling because your neighbors don't lie and, and your neighbors don't commit adultery. And so your marriage vows will be uh, protected uh, by your neighbor who respects marriage and, and on and on the list goes. You will have a blessing as a society and you will have maximum liberty because if you're living in a land where your property right, rights are not secure, it is extremely difficult. There's a whole lot of things you've got to do that make your life that much more burdensome. I was uh, reading about a missionary years ago, and I believe it was a South American country that they were new to, and, and they were kind of confused by what was happening on the bus as they rode the town, the bus into town, that all these people had their chickens and their goats with them on the bus. And at first they thought, oh, I guess they're taking them to market to sell them. And then in the afternoon, it was like, no, these people were returning with the same chickens. And he thought at first, well, I guess they weren't successful in selling them until he got talking to somebody. He said, oh, no, no, people are not taking those to town to sell them. They're taking them to town to preserve them from theft. Because if they left them back at home, they would be stolen by the time they got home. And this machine was shocked. You mean theft is that common that nobody's chickens and goats are safe. Yeah. That, and as the gospel over decades began to make an impact, people came to faith in Christ, became truly devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, learned thou shalt not steal and, and changed from the thieving practices before to obeying God's law. Theft declined to such an extent that people, less and less people were taking their chickens and goats on the bus as the decades rolled on because the culture was being shifted by the law of God and by disciples of Jesus Christ to be one where liberty and freedom and the protection of your property rights was a commonplace thing. And we take that for granted here in America because uh, this Christian heritage has uh, established such tremendous freedom. But we're seeing the attack, particularly as people come into our country who do not hold to these biblical values. Do not hold to the value that says thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not commit it. As we see that uh, Christian heritage weakening, we are going to see increasingly we are losing our liberty because as God said to the, to the people of Israel, this republic, the Hebrew republic that he was establishing for them was dependent upon them not having any other gods 
worshiping and serving the one uh, true God. And so I, I bring this up because this this point, we're going to, in the weeks to come, look at other elements of this, but I bring this point up because it is often conceived in, in the eyes and minds of many people in America today that what I'm talking about is really a theocracy. No, I am not. What I'm talking about is a republic based upon a set of moral legal principles that are established in the word of God. And this is what our founders were establishing. And it didn't mean every person had to be a Christian. But if you go back to, say, the 1950s in our country, nearly everybody, the vast, vast majority of everyone in the country, if they were not a Christian, they at least adopted Christian moral values. They believed adultery was evil, stealing was evil, lying was wrong. They believed the Christian moral values, even if themselves were not a committed Christian. And when we lost that, we have progressively been losing our, our liberties. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts about the Florence, Milan, and Venice? Well, I really appreciate your your relating uh, the, the story about the Hebrew Republic, uh, Republic because without that, the uh, exploration of secular government is meaningless. It is a, a partial picture, and it's and it's distorted. But nonetheless, that's my lot to talk to you today about uh, the secular part of civil government, and. Specifically, we'll be talking about the Italian republics that arose during the Renaissance. And previously in this series, uh, we have seen how ancient Greece and Rome took significant steps towards broadening the base of power beyond the pure monarchies that preceded them. This resulted in the creation of oligarchies, government by the few, or as we would say today, government by elites. These were steps in the right direction but far short of the ideal of true civil government of, by, and for the people. Indeed, the Roman Republic dissolved into the Roman Empire, which was finally overrun in 476 AD in the West by Germanic tribes. The Eastern Empire, with its capital in Constantinople, survived until 1453, when it was overrun by Ottoman Turks. In the West, the fall of Rome marked the beginning of the Middle Ages, a time of relatively weak monarchies by comparison with post-Middle Ages uh, monarchies such as Louis XIV France. No longer capable of exercising political control from a central capital such as Rome, government fell back to the older model seen in Egypt and elsewhere of a landed uh, aristocracy supporting a monarch. Members of the, that aristocracy might pledge fealty to a monarch with the understanding that certain service would be provided by the vassal to the Lord, including military service, or a tax equivalent, the scutage. This was a hierarchical, land-oriented system of wealth generation, with the monarch, the lord of the manor, and his knights at the top of the hierarchy, and peasants and serfs at the bottom. It suited situations in which excess agricultural products were brought to nearby villages to be exchanged for the products of artisans. But as the scope of commerce expanded, particularly contacts with the East developed as uh, the byproduct of the Crusades, those associated with commerce began to assert their political independence. How these governments came to be called republics is less important and how they contrasted with the feudalism that surrounded them. 
Perhaps they saw themselves as modeled after the Roman Republic, or they were labeled by historians subsequent to their formation as independent governments. In any case, they offer lessons that are useful to anybody exploring the roots of civil government. There were many such governments, such each distinctive in some ways. We'll be looking into only three examples, Florence, Milan, and Venice. <clears throat> looking first at Florence. Florence lies in the interior of the Italian peninsula, not an ideal commercial center. Its growth as a commercial center was based upon manufacturing. Will Durant related the material basis of Florence in the recent Renaissance book that he had written. Florence, in the 15th century, was a city-state ruling not only Florence, but with interruptions, Prado, Pistoia, Pisa, Volterra, Cortona, Arezzo, and their agricultural interland. The city of Florence proper had, in 1343, a population of some 91,500 souls. We have no equally reliable estimate for later Renaissance years, but we may presume that the population grew as commerce expanded and industry thrived. About a fourth of the city dwellers were industrial workers. The textile uh, lines alone in the 13th century employed 30,000 men and women in 200 factories. The textiles, Florence had already reached by 1300, the capitalistic state of large investment, central provision of materials and machinery, systematic division of labor, and control of production by the suppliers of capital. In 1407, a woolen garment passed through 30 processes, each performed by a worker specializing in that operation. To sell its products, Florence encouraged its merchants to maintain trade with all ports of the Mediterranean and along the Atlantic as far as Bruges. Consuls were stationed in Italy, the Balearis, Flanders, Egypt, Cyprus, Constantinople, Persia, India, and China to protect and promote Florentine trade. Pisa was conquered as an indispensable outlet of Florentine goods to the sea, and Genoese merchant vessels were hired to carry them. Foreign products competitive with Florentine manufacturers were exploded from the market uh, of Florence through protective tariffs set by government of merchant and financiers. Florence par parlayed its manufacturing success into banking. <clears throat> to finance this industry and commerce, and much else, the 80 banking houses of Florence, chiefly Bardi, Peruzzi, Strozzi, Pitti, and Medici, invested the savings of their depositors. As early as 1300, a system of insurance protected the cargoes in Italy on their voyages, a precaution not adopted in England until 1453. Double entry bookkeeping appears in a Florentine account book of 1382. The Con the Mag uh, Academy offers this description of the government of Florence. <clears throat> we normally think of a republic as a government where everyone votes for representatives who will represent their interests to the government. Think of the United States Pledge of Allegiance and to the republic for which it stands. However, 
Florence was Republic in a sense that there was a constitution which limited the power of the nobility as well as laborers and ensured that no one person or group could have complete political control. So it was far from our ideal of everyone voting. In fact, a very small percentage of the population had the vote. Political power resided in the hands of middle-class merchants, a few wealthy families, such as the Medici, important art patrons who who would later rule Florence, and powerful guilds. The rent provides an additional insight into the scope of the Florentine Republic. The Florentines had observed that the Constitution of the Republic did not protect them from the aristocracy of wealth. If the populace had to choose between the Albizzi, who favored the rich, and the Medici, who favored the middle classes and the poor, it could not long hesitate. A people oppressed by its economic masters and weary of faction welcomed dictatorship in Florence in 1534. The Medici, said Villani, were enabled to attain, uh, attain supremacy in the name of freedom and with the support of the popolo and the populace. Wikipedia describes the power structure in Renaissance Florence. The public was ruled by a council known as the Signoria of Florence. The Signoria was chosen by the Gonfolonieri, the titular ruler of the city, who was elected every two months by Florentine guild members. The guilds of Florence were secular corporations that controlled the arts and trades in Florence from the uh, the 12th to the 16th century. These archi included seven major guilds, collectively known as the Archi Maggiore, five middle guilds, Archi Mediani, and nine minor guilds, Archi Minori. Their rigorous quality control and the political role in the commune that the Archi Maggiore assumed were formative influences in the history of Florence, which became one of the richest cities of late medieval Europe. In the early 20th century, Mussolini built a fascist government on this model, as did Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the United States, and the National Recovery Act during the Great Depression. <clears throat> Neither example is consistent with Lockean civil government as a result of its exclusive nature. Among the exclude, excluded were ordinary workers and any participant in a trade for which there was no guild. Let's take a look at Milan. <clears throat> the rat observed, the cities, the city-states that divided the Italian peninsula were ruled in some case Florence, Siena, Venice, by mercantile oligarchies more often, um, more often by despots of diverse degree who had superseded republican or communal institutions vitiated by class exploitation and political violence. <clears throat> Out of the competition of strong men, one emerged, almost always of humble birth, who subdued and destroyed um, or hired the rest, made himself absolute ruler, and in some cases transmitted his power to his heir. So the Visconti, or Sforzas, ruled in Milan. They waged frequent, usually petty war. 
seeking the mirage of security through the advancement of their frontiers and having an expansive appetite for taxable terrain. They did not send their own people to war, for then they would have to arm, have had to arm them, which might be suicidal. Instead, they hired mercenaries and paid them with the proceeds of conquests, ransoms, confiscations, and pillage. Gun control advocates should take note of the strategy of the ruling elites to keep weapons out of the hands of the people who could use these weapons to overthrow the despots. There's no confusion here about the intended use of weapons only for hunting purposes, and note that Renaissance gun control did not stop the elite from acquiring weapons, and it is unlikely that Renaissance criminals felt the need to deny themselves as well. Francisco Sforza was one of those Renaissance mercenaries, perhaps the ultimate soldier. At some point in his career, he became dissatisfied with working for others, according to Durant. <clears throat> Ambitious to found a state of his own, Francisco Sforza allowed no scruples to enter his policy. He fought alternatively for Milan, Florence, and Venice until Filippo won his loyalty by giving him Bianca in marriage, with Cremona and Contramoli as her dowry in 1441. When six years later, Filippo died heirless, bringing his, his Conti dynasty to an end, Francisco felt that the dowry should include Milan. The Milanese thought differently. They proclaimed a republic, but the rival factions in the city could not agree. The dependencies of Milan snatched the opportunity to declare themselves free. In this crisis, a deputation sought Sforza, gave him Brescia, and begged him to defend Milan. He fought off his enemies with resourceful energy, but when the new government made peace with Venice without consulting him, he turned his troops against the Republic, besieged Milan to the edge of starvation, accepted its surrender, entered the city uh, amid uh, the acclamations of a hungry populace, and dulled the lust for liberty by distributing bread. General Assembly was summoned, composed of one man from each uh, household. It invested him with the ducal authority over the protests of the emperor, and the Sforza dynasty began its brief and brilliant career in 1450. <clears throat> Milan was an industrial and commercial center that rivaled Florence and, and Venice. <clears throat> the silk industry employed 20,000 workers and captured many foreign markets from Florence. Ironmongers, goldsmiths, woodcarvers, enamelers, potters, mosaicists, glass caters, perfumers, embroiderers, tapestry weavers and makers, musical instruments contributed to the busy din of Milanese industry. Adorned the palaces and personages of the court with ornaments, and exported sufficient surplus to pay for the softer luxuries that came from the east. Neither Milan nor Florence, while claiming to be republics, qualifies to be called a republic in the modern sense. They were oligarchies, and imperial at that. It is interesting that both governments were dominated by families that had benefited from the new wealth that commerce had brought. 
Finally, let's take a look at Venice. Venice shared some characteristics with the other Italian city-states, but there were also significant differences. The others were all located on the Italian mainland, while the Venetian city-state was located on an island adjacent to the Italian mainland. This gave her a natural moat around her, but made her totally dependent upon other city-states for food and other life basics. To the extent she could gain in, uh, gain dependencies on the mainland, this weakness could be reduced. But there was always the temptation of her competitors to block the few routes into and out of the city. Thus, Venice was not immune to the need for military services to assert its independence. The other Italian city-states offered a model which Venice partially accepted, but also substantially rejected. It accepted the idea of a mercenary general, I'm sorry, my Italian is not very good, uh, but rejected a mercenary army in favor of Venetian militia. In doing so, she gave the advantage of permanent military leadership, but was not exposed to the danger of becoming servile to a mercenary army. Gun control advocates might reject this argument, emphasizing that other city-states, including Florence and Milan, believed arming their own citizens was suicidal. However, of all the Italian so-called republics, Venice was the most enduring suggesting that gun control was not necessary. It should be noted that in the War of Independence, the United States relied heavily upon militia against both the regular army of Britain, but also mercenary troops from what became Germany. Venice did not always operate from natural military strength, according to Durant. In 1378, Venice was at a nader. Her Adriatic trade was bottled up by a victorious Genoese fleet. Her communications with the mainland were blocked by Genoese and Paduan troops. Her people were starving. Her government contemplated, contemplated surrender. Half a century later, she ruled Padua, Vicenza, Verona, Brescia, Bergamo, Treviso, Belluno, Feltre, Frioli, Istria, the Dalmatian coast, Lepanto, Patras, and Corinth. Secure in her many-moated citadel, she seemed immune to the political vicissitudes of the Italian mainland. Her wealth and power mounted until she sat like a throne queen at the head of Italy. Durant raised the question, <clears throat> whence came the wealth which supported the magnificence of Venice? partly from a hundred industries, shipbuilding, iron manufacturers, glass blowing, leather dressing and tooling, gem cutting and setting textiles, all organized in proud guilds, spole, that united master and man in patriotic fellowship. But perhaps more of Venice, Venetian opulence came from the mercantile Marine whose sails flapped on the lagoons, whose galleys took the products of Venice and our mainland dependencies, and the German and other wares that scaled the Alps and carried them to Egypt, Greece, Byzantium, and Asia, 
and returned from the east silks, spices, rugs, drugs, and slaves. He reported that Venetian ships could be seen from the Black Sea to London and even in Iceland. Her government was seen as a model of the Italian Renaissance. The government, which even Florentines sought to emulate, was a closed oligarchy of old families, so long enriched by commerce that only the initiate could smell the money in her nobility. These families had managed to restrict membership in the Major Concilio to male descendants of persons who had sat in this great council since 1297. In 1315, the names of all eligibles were inscribed in a Libro de Oro, or Book of Gold. Out of its 480 members, the, goal, the council named 60, later 120, Frigati, or invited men, to serve in yearly terms as le a legislative senate. It appointed the heads of numerous governmental uh, departments, who together constituted an administrative collegio and it's selected as chief executive, always subject to the council, a doge or leader who presided over it and the Senate, and held office for life unless the council cared to dispose him. Two thoughts may be derived from this. One, the importance of manufacturing and commerce in establishing a new governing elite. <clears throat> and two, these city-states were republics in name only. The governing base had been expanded beyond the purely top-down model of monarchical government, but these republics were distinct from the Lockean ideal. No, indeed, and thank you, Phil. It's, it's fascinating to see the different patterns, although there's some similarities that, that are going on, and it appears to me, give me your, your feedback on this thought, but that uh, there's two forms of, of power. One is military power, and the uh, those who come to power by means of the military and maintain their power through the military, you know, kind of a Napoleonic uh, model or a pharaoh, pharaoh and his army model. But then the others who come to power through wealth, that is, they're very successful businessmen, and, and in their wealth, then they guard very carefully uh, access to the kind of power that they hold through that. And uh, both of those seem to be the, the typical model that, that we're talking about here. Is that is that accurate? I think that's very accurate. Um, and, and it's interesting. I don't think that we can out of hand kind of reject either one as good or bad. Uh, both both have their, their good side and their bad side. Um, the danger, let's look at the commerce uh, first. I think there's a tendency to broaden uh, the distribution of power that arises out of a, uh, uh, a state becoming uh, oriented towards commerce. And I think that's a very good thing. However, we also, that can be contaminated by the idea of what became called mercantilism, uh, the idea that um, the government and the commercial class form an uh, a unity, uh, and they work together, uh, generally to the disadvantage of the consumers in, the, in that uh, nation. I think that's that's very bad. Uh, uh, in terms of the, the military, one of the 
probably the first reason for uh, creating a government of, of the, the kind we've been talking about is defense against external enemies. So the basic idea is legitimate. But then that too can be taken to excess and the idea of mercantilism can be mixed into that that broth, uh, that if you will, uh, to create an industrial um, military uh, alliance, working again, working against the people. And you know, if we look at the United States, certainly in its early days, uh, there was a need for uh, defense, uh, and and that was uh, that was shown in the, the War of Independence with with Britain. We needed our own military in order to establish this nation independently. Um, but over the years, uh, the military has grown well beyond its needs. And I think I have spoken earlier about uh, the nature of the United States today, the geographical nature of the United States is such that we're bound on uh, by the two major oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and by the Gulf of, of Mexico to the, the south. We have a common cultural heritage with our neighbor to the north. Uh, no concerns about uh, you know, military uh, uh, operations against the, the uh, Canadians. And likewise, uh, uh, we have a 2,000-mile border, I think, with the Mexicans uh, to the south, and they're not a threat militarily to us, really. Although some would say that, that recently they are invading our, our country. They're not bringing arms over and fighting, but they're sneaking through the, uh, the Rio Grande. Um, but I think it really comes down to this. If you look, if you compare uh, the size of our military budget and realize that as a nation, we have less need for military defense than probably any other nation in the world. And yet, we have a, a military budget that exceeds 7 to 11 of the next next uh, nations in the world. Mm, yes. That's clearly excessive. A excellent, excellent point. And I think it was uh, President Eisenhower in his farewell address. A war he warned us about the uh, development of what he could see in his day, which is certainly what the six uh, six decades or more ago, that he could see the danger of a military industrial complex that is big business and the military in an alliance together because the businesses that sell armaments to the military, you know, whether that's selling bullets or tanks or submarines or or you know uh, cruiser ships or you know any any military aircraft, so. The businesses that are selling military goods to the military, why, of course, what do they want? They want to have more sales. So how do you get more sales for your military hardware? Well, you got to go to war. You know, you got to destroy a number of F-15s to, you know, get more F-15s in production. So, you, you know, so that he saw that there's a, a, a corruption that was taking place in his day of the military industrial complex where these, these two great powers that as we're seeing illustrated in the history of uh, not just medieval, but uh, also other other nations, that the, the power base coming out of the military or the power base coming 
out of uh, you know out of the industrial if those two combine together that's a very dangerous thing and and, and we actually have a third element of that that uh, uh, 2020 has revealed to us has been part of that and that is the Department of Defense was involved in handing out contracts to these people who were developing uh, defenses against viruses in other words the Department of Defense was involved in the pharmaceutical industry. And that's a kind of a, a new thing. You know, yes, obviously, we knew the Department of Defense and the military contractors who are developing bombs and, and planes and ships and all of those. Sort, that's an obvious connection. But virus production uh, and antiviral and all of that is like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now we have big pharma the industrial complex that is uh, producing military hardware and the military joined together in this conglomeration that I would argue is extremely dangerous, far more dangerous than what even Eisenhower saw. This kind of a, a pulling of power together should be a, a great warning to us. And we should, you know, we should be certainly questioning uh, those who represent us. Why are they allowing this to happen? Why is the DOD paying Moderna to develop a, a vaccine for something that hadn't yet been supposedly uh, invented, the uh, you know the, the new virus, Corona, that came out of uh, Wuhan. And uh, how in the world is this all going on? And we know it was our government through Fauci that was funding the research gain of function in Wuhan. So it's like, wait, wait a minute, we got this complex thing going on where our military appears to be completely out of control doing something that is nefarious and, and something that I would argue is uh, not only destructive to our form of government, but even destructive to our health. Yes. Um, you know, it's disturbing that a, a significant number of a percentage, let us say, of our, our citizens truly believe that uh, military uh, expenditures um, create true wealth for a nation. and. Uh, that's an example, I think, of of what Bastiat had had called um, the fallacy of what is seen versus what is not seen. Uh, the basic idea here is that what is seen very often is that money's flow through factories and so forth, and people are employed. What is not seen is how those funds would have been uh, allocated uh, otherwise. They would have gone to uh, a peacetime goods to the enhancement uh, of uh, individuals um, and their their economic flourishing. And I think one of the best examples of this is uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler. Uh, Hitler, you know, uh, really reallocated the, the uh, German economy and supposedly brought it uh, out of the doldrums. Well, okay, at what price? We saw the, the uh, cost of that. Twelve years later, uh, you know, as as uh, Germany went down in flames, and and the rub for expanding and giving the military, as you pointed out, you know, a huge budget, bigger budget, and, and we know that there's even black operations that you know are even off the record, so we don't even know what's being spent there. And you know, before nine eleven, I think there was several, I forget how many hundreds of billions of dollars were missing, and the Pentagon could not account for all this money that simply was given to it and somehow disappeared and their accountants never caught what was going on. It's like, what? And then there was a section of the Pentagon that was supposed to be investigating this disappeared money 
And oddly enough, that was the part of the Pentagon that, that was bombed uh, at 9-11. Very curious. But anyway, I bring up 9-11 because the 9-11 Commission, whether you agree or disagree with their research and their, their, you know, their final report and so on and so forth, but they basically agreed with uh, uh, Congressman Ron Paul, who said, what we've experienced in 9-11, if what we're being told is true, that these were, you know, uh, Middle Eastern jihadists who had a had it in for America. They hated America. At all. This was actually, as Ron Paul, as well as the uh, uh, the 9/11 Commission report said, this is essentially blowback for our foreign policy, where we have been using our military around the world to destabilize countries, to take some people out of power and put other people back into power, basically to create puppet governments through our CIA and and black operations. And, and we're experiencing this right now with the Ukraine. Most people, uh, hopefully some folks have listened to uh, the interview with Putin, not that we believe everything that he said, but he was accurate at saying this war didn't begin in the Ukraine when we were told it began in, in, uh, you know, two years ago. Now, this has been 10 years going because it was in 2014 that our CIA overthrew the duly elected government of the Ukraine and installed a puppet government in the Ukraine that began to attack Russian-speaking people in the eastern part of the, the Ukraine, which basically brought Russia into the scene. Anyway, all of that, not, not to defend Russia, but to say that it's our foreign policy through the CIA, through a military and, and doing black operations around the world that has earned us the hatred of many, many countries in the world. And this is not to our benefit. It's created terrorists all over the world who hate America and would love to cross our borders and do us harm because of what our military and our CIA have, the harm that they have done in, in countries all over the world. Now, I, I understand that uh, that interview has been uh, criticized, particularly the front end when um, Putin uh, took, I think, something like a half hour, 40 minutes to uh, give a lecture on Russian history. Well, that Russian history is very important to Russia. Now, we ignore it. Uh, we're, we're so focused on our own history, and that's good. I wish we were focused a little bit more. But still, we've got to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And, and basically, if you understand Russian history, Russia began in the Ukraine. Kiev was the mother city, the mother capital of Russia. So, yeah, when you when you start to poke around in a place like that, you're you're upsetting a BLA. Now, this is this is a time to to listen to Washington about you know that's George Washington, right, right, not the city of Washington. But this is this is a good time to to uh, Think of his his uh, advice in his farewell address. Yeah, uh, don't get involved in in the internal politics of others uh, other nations. Uh, we cannot be the policemen of the world. I mean, look at the mathematics. Look at the places we've been in, uh, like Iraq, where we proclaimed that we had brought democracy to the Middle East. Now, democracy in what sense is that the disease that that Madison was talking about? Yeah, yeah, we certainly did that. But democracy is a good form of government? No, no. You have to understand the cultures that you are, are dealing with. Those cultures are quite distinct from our own. 
and we should not be making assumptions based upon our own narrow and and very insular uh, thinking. Amen. And, and we ought to also listen to our sixth president, John Quincy Adam, who said in a July 4th oration that we, America, does not go around the world seeking monsters to destroy. No, no, no. We're a friend of liberty everywhere, but we will not fight for liberty in some other country. We'll support them in terms of trade and other things, but we're not going to get involved in what's happening in, in the disputes of other countries. And I think Washington, George Washington and John Quincy Adams should be listened to because we're seeing the blowback and the disaster of what's coming across our border, which I think is an extreme danger to our liberties, uh, is part of that hatred that we've created through our CIA doing illegal, immoral things around the world, overthrowing other governments. That should not be our business at all. Uh, we should mind our own business and be friendly in trade with other countries that we can be, uh, but not provoke other countries uh, in, uh, in overthrowing their duly elected governments like we did in the Ukraine. Like, by the way, we also did in Iran. We were the ones that overthrew the government uh, and installed the Shah, who was hated by the Iranian people and ultimately led to that revolution and so on. You know, So every place we've stuck in our fingers in to try to meddle with other governments has resulted in a disaster, not only for that country, but I believe ultimately for ours. So we've allowed the military and the CIA and all of the intelligence community, for that matter, to be far, far too powerful in our country. I think we ought to strip their budgets, eliminate the CIA and, and some of these other nefarious uh, intelligence community agencies. You know, when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, there was an understanding that um, we would not extend NATO to uh, Russia's borders. And of course, we violated those promises. Uh, if NATO um, had backed off to its, its original um, extent, then the Russians could look at their situation and say, at least, you know, we're not being threatened by the, the West. And there is a history of Western intervention goes back at least to uh, World uh, World War One. Uh, Russians do have a legitimate concern about the West invading their their territory. No, oh, which so yeah, good history of Hitler doing that and Napoleon doing that before that. Yeah, sure. And and the United States was involved in this in two places: one in the uh, in Siberia, and once. And another in the uh, Archangel. So, you know, the Russians know this history. <laughs> you know, they're not ignorant of it. Other, we are. The other fascinating thing is that, again, if I have to check the, the record, but Putin said that he had a conversation with Bill Clinton and asking if Russia could join NATO. And Bill Clinton said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. But later that day, he came back and said, oh, no, no, no. My advisors said that's impossible. Russia can never join NATO. And it's like, hmm, why, why not? Why not have peace? with Russia. Well, this is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. And, and I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. And we invite you to check out our website, 1180wfyl.com. Click on the podcast there and go all the way down to the bottom of the list. We the People, the Constitution Matters. We have a host of resources that can help you 
understand every phrase of our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the subsequent amendments, and uh, the articles uh, of the uh, Anti-Federalist of the Federalist Debate, all of these resources. But we invite you to join us again next Friday morning at 8 a.m. for We the People, the Constitution Matters. <laughs>